Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. $5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code SAVE to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Conway, South Carolina. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Crystal Faye Todd came into her parents' lives a little later than most. Her mother was 39 at the time, and back in 1974, that wasn't as common as it is today. To her mother, Bonnie, Crystal was a miracle baby and became the center of her world. When Crystal was 11, her father passed away and it became just Crystal and her mom. The two were two peas in a pod and became the most genuine mother-daughter best friend duo you can imagine. They did everything together and loved every second of it. The way Bonnie talked about Crystal makes you want to hug your mom. As Crystal grew up and got into high school, her outgoing personality won her a lot of friends. She'd hang out with them every chance she got, and one of her best friends was a guy right down the road. His name was Ken, and he was a year older than her, but they too were two peas in a pod. Bonnie loved him, and so did everyone else. He was a star on the high school football team and played varsity three out of the four years he was there, and every friend and teacher thought he was this anomaly of a charming, well-mannered jock. Ken graduated a year before Crystal in the spring of 1991, but even though he was in the transition to adulthood, he and Crystal never skipped a beat. They tried their hand at dating, and it was a shorthand because it looks like they might have gone on one date before Crystal was like, nah, friend zone it is, and Ken seemed to be fine with that. Crystal went on to have several crushes, as high school seniors do, and Ken went on to date other girls as well. Actually, a much younger girl. It looks like she was 15 years old, so likely a sophomore at the time. Even though he had a girlfriend, Ken kept shooting his shot at Crystal's affection, because according to forensic files, in early November of 1991, Crystal told her mom that Ken was trying to be with her again. Bonnie didn't think that was the worst thing in the world because she adored Ken, but Crystal clarified that he was just trying to hook up with her. 
Maybe he was thinking that if they hooked up, she'd fall for him and they'd run off into the sunset together, but Crystal wasn't interested and Bonnie wanted more for her daughter than a guy who only wanted to have sex with her. So like any mother would, she told Crystal to take a hard pass on his offer. Again, Ken seemed to take it in stride and their friendship never faltered. They went right back to being neighbor besties as usual. On Saturday, November 19, 1991, Crystal spent most of the day with her family celebrating her grandmother's birthday, and by the time night fell, it was time to do what normal 17-year-old girls do, hang out with her friends. She got into her brand new 1991 Toyota Celica that her mom had gotten her as an early graduation gift, with personalized plates to match, they had her name on it, C. Todd, and headed out to figure out what her friends were doing for the night. There was a small party, but that wasn't as exciting as a night at the mall seeing what everyone else was doing and getting in a little window shopping. She stayed there with her friends until around 11 o'clock when everyone started making their way back home for their curfews. She and her friends walked out to the parking lot and got in their cars to leave, but Crystal still had about an hour left before her midnight curfew, so she told them she was going to grab a bite to eat before heading home, and they all said their goodbyes and parted ways. No one ever saw Crystal alive again. When midnight rolled around and Crystal wasn't home, Bonnie's mom's senses started going off. Crystal wasn't the type to miss curfew, and if she was, certainly she would have called. Hardly anyone had cell phones back then, and she'd have found a home phone or a payphone to let her mom know that she was going to be late. She waited an hour, expecting for Crystal to roll in and give her the don't make me worry like that speech, but she never got the chance. By 1.13 a.m., Crystal still hadn't come home, so Bonnie did the only thing she could and called 911. She asked them to pull over Crystal's car if they came across it, and it should have been pretty easy to spot with those vanity plates. An officer also responded to the house and told Bonnie that everything was going to be fine, that she was probably just out late with friends and that she lost track of time. It's not unlike teenagers to stay out past curfew, and he reassured Bonnie that she'd be back any time now. But Crystal didn't come back. Even though the police were aware of the situation and the general consensus was that Crystal was probably fine, Bonnie wasn't so sure. She called Crystal's best friend Ken to see if he had seen her, but he said that he'd just gotten home and that he hadn't seen her all night. He offered to call the local hospitals in the area while Bonnie called Crystal's other friends to try and track her down, so that's exactly what they did. Bonnie called around and found out that the last time anyone had seen her was in the mall parking lot and that she planned on stopping somewhere to grab a bite to eat. Ken called Bonnie back later to let her know that Crystal wasn't at any of the local hospitals. None of this was making Bonnie feel any better. She called a friend of hers and he got out of bed and helped her go out and look for Crystal, but their searches came up empty. And by the time the sun came up, she knew without a doubt that something was wrong. She called 911 again and a more serious search began. It wasn't long at all before someone spotted Crystal's car in the parking lot of the middle school in town. The place didn't make a ton of sense and neither did the fact that it was locked and her purse was in the car. It seemed like she just stepped out and vanished. There were a million questions running through everyone's head, but they barely had enough time to ask them before they got a horrifying answer. 
Two hunters called 911 after they were walking along a dirt road into the woods and came across a trail of blood just about a 10-minute drive from where Crystal's car had been found. They followed the trail across the road and into a ditch where they found the body of a young woman who had been brutally murdered. Brutally murdered doesn't even begin to cover what happened to this young woman. According to the Sun News, when police got to the scene, they found that she had been stabbed more than 30 times across her chest, abdomen, back, face, and skull. One of the stab wounds to her skull had crushed it and the knife had entered her brain. Her throat was cut from ear to ear and she had been disemboweled. It was Crystal and they knew it was Crystal because she was still wearing her class ring that had her name inscribed on the inside. She had defensive wounds on her left hand, and it was clear to them that she had been sexually assaulted. An autopsy only made their findings more horrific. Crystal was right-handed, but only defended herself with her left hand because the stab wound that had entered her skull had paralyzed the right side of her body. Fully aware of what was happening and the fact that she was paralyzed, Crystal still put every ounce of strength she had into fighting off her attacker, an attacker that didn't stop even when she was dead. According to forensic files, some of her wounds didn't bleed, which meant that her heart had stopped pumping before they were inflicted. The autopsy also revealed that Crystal's sexual assault had been as violent as her murder. I'm not going to go into the details, but Crystal had been sexually assaulted in every way possible. She had been killed on the side of this desolate dirt road off of Highway 813, and after she was dead, her killer dragged her body across it and threw her body into the ditch. Whoever killed Crystal didn't take anything with them. They didn't steal her car. They didn't steal her ring. It seemed overtly personal and full of rage and sexually motivated. No one could think of anyone who would do that to her. The police department processed Crystal's crime scene like it was their only job. They collected DNA from inside her body in the hopes that they'd be able to test it and come up with some kind of match. Back then, DNA technology was new and more often than not, determined the offender's blood type and PGM. The Sun News reports that that specific sample came back as type O blood, but they got a lucky break when they found out that the offender's PGM was extremely rare. It narrowed the pool of potential killers down to 2% of the population. They hoped that throughout their investigation, they'd be able to narrow down a suspect and match his blood and PGM types. Crystal's mom had her entire world come crashing down in a matter of hours. Her daughter had been the center of her universe, and it had been just the two of them for the last six years of their lives. Without her, she didn't know who she was or what to do. She told the Sun News, She was my whole life. I don't know that I'll make it without her. I don't know if I want to. Though she was immeasurably devastated in a way that the air doesn't fill your lungs and your heart is crushed to a point where it doesn't feel like it works anymore, Bonnie leaned on hers and Crystal's friends for support, especially Ken, who was sick about Crystal's murder. According to the Sun News, when he came over to comfort her, Bonnie found him outside throwing up in the bushes. His mom told Bonnie that he'd been sick since the night before, so I suppose the concern about her not coming home was enough to throw his stomach into a tailspin. Crystal's murder rocked the entire community and more than 1,000 people showed up to her funeral. Yes, 1,000. Whether they personally knew her or not, they wanted Bonnie to know that they were behind her and that they wanted justice for Crystal just as much as they wanted it for her. 
Ken was one of Crystal's pallbearers carrying her casket in and out of the service, and he was visibly shaken. According to the Sun News, he told Bonnie, whoever did this is probably sorry about it now. It sounded like a precursor to mercy or maybe even a step towards forgiveness to the person responsible for her murder, but he'd always been known for being soft-spoken and level-headed. Following Crystal's funeral, Ken seemed to feel like it was his duty to help Crystal's mother get through the days. She told Forensic Files, I don't really have a life anymore. I just exist. I go from one day to the next. It's just hard and it doesn't get any better. Ken visited her every single day, checking on her and asking how the investigation was going. It hadn't gone very far at all, so law enforcement offered a $10,000 reward for anyone with information leading to an arrest. While they were fielding tips, they got one from someone who said they'd passed Crystal's car in the middle school parking lot the night she disappeared and that they'd seen an older man and a woman standing near it. They had a sketch artist come in and draw up who the witness saw, and the sketches looked eerily similar to Crystal's mother and her mother's boyfriend. For a moment, police thought maybe there was something Bonnie wasn't telling them, but according to forensic files, the witness later recanted, saying that they'd been drinking that night and might have mixed up the night she disappeared with the morning they found her car, which would make sense since Bonnie and her boyfriend did go to Crystal's vehicle once it was found. With that out of the way, law enforcement started looking through Crystal's belongings, looking for anything that might lead them in the right direction. They found one of her school books where she doodled different names here and there, and they found one particular one that stood out. The name Andrew Tyndall. Forensic Files reports that he was someone the teenage girls knew around town, but what they didn't know was that he was 31, married, was a convicted thief, and had a warrant out for his arrest. Police tracked him down, and he did not go easily. It was a whole 10-hour debacle where he ran from them, and they had to set up a perimeter using helicopters and canines. When they eventually got him into custody, they asked for a sample of his DNA, and while they were certain it was going to come back as a match, it didn't. This Andy fellow was not their guy. This department was going to do everything in their power to catch whoever did this to Crystal because according to the Herald, they believed that whoever killed her would kill again. They enlisted the help of the FBI profilers who, according to Forensic Files, came to the conclusion that whoever killed Crystal was likely a white male in his early 20s. Likely someone Crystal knew, who lived close to where she was killed, was physically strong and confident that they'd never be considered a suspect. With that, the attention was focused on Crystal's male friends and classmates. 52 of them were asked if they'd voluntarily give DNA samples to compare to the one taken from Crystal's body, and every single one of them agreed. Ken was initially cautious, wondering what DNA even was because it was fairly new at the time, but the Sun News reports that Crystal's mom told him, Ken, you don't have to worry about your blood test. You didn't do it. Bonnie couldn't have been more wrong. Ken's DNA came back as a match. The likelihood that it wasn't his was 1 in 250 million. 
meaning that according to the CDC, it was more likely that you'd get struck by lightning 250 times than cannot be the one who left the DNA in Crystal's body. He was the last person on the face of the planet that Bonnie thought would have ever been responsible for killing her daughter. And it came as a shock to everyone else, too. Everyone knew him as this perfect, respectable gentleman who minded his manners and helped out where he could. What they didn't know was that Ken had a dark side. When Ken was just 15 years old, he was caught making obscene phone calls to a woman named Julie. He would describe in graphic detail how he wanted to physically and sexually assault her and cut her open. Exactly what happened to Crystal. According to the Sun News, a woman named Kathy also received obscene phone calls from him. He was never prosecuted for them, and it didn't end there. Just a couple of weeks before Crystal's murder, the Sun News reports that Ken drove up to two teenage girls and asked them for directions. When they started talking to him, he unzipped his pants and started touching himself. As the girls walked away, he reportedly yelled at them, lifted himself off of the seat, and continued to expose himself. The girls were able to write down his license plate and Ken was arrested for indecent exposure and held on a $2,000 bail. Eventually, he was sentenced to a year in prison, but not until after Crystal was murdered. The show Stolen Voices Buried Secrets reports that Ken also had a habit of purchasing pornographic materials on his way to and from work every day, and they briefly mentioned the mutilation of animals. Bonnie told Forensic Files if she had known any of that, Ken would have never stepped foot in her house. Law enforcement knew they had their guy, so on February 8, 1992, a little more than two months after Crystal's murder, they showed up at Ken's work and took him into custody. He was charged with murder, first-degree criminal sexual conduct, kidnapping, and sodomy. Instead of asking for a lawyer on his way to the police station, he asked for his mommy multiple times, but he was an adult, so that request was a no. Once at the police station, the interrogation began. Police are allowed to lie in an interview, and they had his DNA, so in an effort to try and get first-hand information from Ken, they told him that they had witnesses who'd seen him and Crystal on the night of the murder. They're allowed to lie so long as they're not threatening, violent, or promising anything in return for the information. It's certainly a gray area when it comes to the court of public opinion, but it's legal. Moving along in their interrogation, Forensic Files reports that law enforcement told Ken that his tire tracks, shoe prints, and fingerprints were all found at the scene and that they had irrefutable DNA evidence against him. The DNA thing wasn't much of a lie at all, but back then it was new, so at the time, the word irrefutable might have been arguable. When you'd see articles in the paper about Ken's DNA results, you'd see a follow-up explaining what exactly that was. Over and over, you'd read, Dioxyribonucleic acid is the basic material in chromosomes of a cell nucleus and contains a genetic code considered as unique as a person's fingerprints. In 1992, DNA wasn't the end-all be-all that it is now. Police told Ken that if he would help them out, they'd tell the court about his cooperation. It didn't promise him any results from them telling the court about it, so it was still in the realm of being a perfectly legal interrogation tactic. Ken didn't want to say anything to them without talking to his mom, so instead of allowing him to do it, 
Investigators went to visit her. Instead of coming down to the station, she wrote her son a letter. According to documents on Justia Law, it read, Ken, I love you. I know where you were at. We know when you left the racetrack and I know when you got home. I'll stand by you. I love you, Mama. Ken had previously given police two alibis. According to forensic files, one was that he was at a go-kart track with his 15-year-old girlfriend until around 11.35 p.m., and the next was that he'd gotten back to his mother's house around 12.15 a.m. His alibi would probably mean a bit more if they came from anyone other than his mother and 15-year-old girlfriend, but regardless of them, they still put him on the road around the same time Crystal would have been grabbing something to eat and heading home. He also had told Crystal's mom that he had just gotten home when she called him a little after 1 a.m. A 45-minute jump is a big one when we know that she was last seen at 11 p.m. and she missed her curfew an hour later. Instead of reading Ken the actual letter his mother had written him, they told him that she was upset, loved him, and wanted him to tell the truth. And it worked. Sort of. He started to confess, but in the shittiest way possible. According to forensic files, he told police that he and Crystal pulled up to the same stoplight around midnight and that they talked for a second and pulled into the middle school parking lot. He says that she got into his car and that the two headed to a remote place, which has horrifyingly been referred to as Lover's Lane several times. Once they got there, Ken claims that the two of them had consensual sex, but let's be clear, what happened to Crystal that night was in no way consensual. She had extensive injuries from it. I'd also like to point out that if he saw her at midnight, then did everything he admitted to doing, there was no way he was back at his mom's house 15 minutes later, shitting all over his second alibi. Once he was done gargling the trash in his mouth about having consensual sex, he upped his garbage ante by claiming that she got upset with him about not using a condom. He claims that she told him if she got pregnant, she would tell people that he raped her. That's when he says he lost it, that he started stabbing Crystal, and when he was done, threw the knife into the woods, a knife that was never recovered but theorized to be a folding and locking knife. According to forensic files, they found a box in his room that would have held a knife similar to the one used to kill Crystal, a knife that was no longer in the box. The Sun News went on to report that trace amounts of Crystal's blood were found on his steering wheel, gear shift, and door handles, which tracks with the idea that whoever killed her would have been covered in her blood. It also leads you to the realization that his car was likely cleaned extensively. Regardless of the dumpster fire victim-blaming confession, Ken admitted to having killed Crystal and that's all they needed. The rest was free to come out in trial if he decided to, after all of this, plead not guilty. And plead not guilty, he did. Before his trial, his defense team tried to suppress the DNA evidence. It was going to be the first trial in South Carolina history to use DNA, but the judge ruled that it was admissible. All the prosecution had to do was present their evidence and get the jury to understand how DNA works, what it means, and hope to everything that they understand and get a conviction. A friend of his told the Sun News that if he did it, she hopes he fries. 
and that was certainly an option. If found guilty, Ken was facing the death penalty, and the first lethal injection wasn't carried out until 1995. He was facing the electric chair. In January of 1993, Ken's trial began, and because there was so much love for Crystal and Bonnie, and the fact that it was going to be the first DNA trial in the state, the courthouse was beyond packed. According to the Sun News, there were only 360 seats in the courtroom itself, but they let an additional 40 people inside, leaving them to either stand or sit on the floor. Hundreds waited outside in the halls. The prosecution went through every ounce of evidence they had before Ken took the stand in his own defense. He didn't do himself any favors when he did. The item newspaper reports that he showed no emotion and that he didn't even bat an eye when they handed him Crystal's bloody clothing. On January 22, 1992, the jury was sent out for deliberation, and it took them all of five hours to find him guilty. When it came to sentencing, it took even less time. According to the Sun News, they couldn't bring themselves to sentence a now 19-year-old to death, so he was given life in prison for the murder and an additional 35 years for the other convictions. I'd be lying if I said that everyone wasn't rooting for the death penalty in Ken's case. Crystal's mother told the Sun-Times, I'll hate him as long as I live. I don't know how anyone could have any mercy on him. He didn't have any mercy at all on Crystal. While life in prison can sound like life in prison because that's what they've decided to name it, that's not always what it means. Ken's sentence left him eligible for parole after 30 years, and in February of this year, 2022, at 48 years old, he was given the opportunity. A petition made its way around the internet against the hearing and it read, in part, On Wednesday, February 9th, 2022, there will be a hearing at which Johnny Ken Register will be considered for parole. Many in the tight-knit community of Conway, South Carolina, believe the conviction and sentence should stand. The citizens of this county do not believe Johnny Ken Register could have been rehabilitated and should never be paroled. Even his name still brings fear to many residents. Ken denied his own parole hearing, and according to MyHari News, he won't be eligible for another until 2024. All Crystal wanted that night was to hang out with friends and grab something to eat before coming home to the mother, who had dedicated her entire life to her and was ready to watch Crystal graduate high school and start the rest of her life. An opportunity that was stolen from the both of them in the span of one missing hour by the one person they never would have suspected. For now, Ken remains in jail and will for at least the next two years until he's eligible for another parole hearing when he's 50. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Crystal's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. To listen ad-free and get access to bonus episodes, subscribe on Apple or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for only $1 a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. I'll be bringing you a missing persons episode on Thursday and a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. 